How many of you were in Theology 1? Most of you, but some were not. Okay, a couple. I wanted to show this chart again because I think it gives some good context of what we're doing. I mean, we're spending four quarters, four semesters talking about theology, right? That's a really deep dive. And I'm a visual guy, so I thought it's always helpful to kind of put into context what's happening. So we talked the very first lesson of Theology 1 about, you know, revelation, and we talk about this idea of general revelation, which just think of uh, creation, right? God speaking about himself through creation, and that's available for everyone. But here we are digging really deep into what we call the special revelation. And so that's why in Theology 1, we started with um, bibliology, right? The study of the scripture, and that's what we're doing to find truth about the rest of these doctrines. So that's kind of that green circle, if you will. And I, I put, um, you know, theology proper about God kind of inside and outside of the circle. Because like we said, through general revelation, we can learn things. We know things about God, right? And yet we find a whole lot more as we get into special revelation. But that's why I put that overlap over there. And then now in theology too, we're going to continue with the Trinity, Right? focusing on Jesus Christ, Christology, and then the Holy Spirit later in the quarter. Next semester, right now, now we understand who God is, and now we need to know who, find out about man, ourselves, right? As, as fallen creatures, and then who we are in Christ. So that's why you see anthropology, man, we talk about the sin, and then the need for salvation. So you kind of get the flow there of what's happening. But I thought, again, it would be helpful to put all of that in context. So let me ask you, I'll just throw it out. Why Why spend four quarters talking about theology or doctrine? Isn't that kind of overkill? Alex, say it. I see it on your mind. Underkill. <laughs> it's underkill. Love it. Seriously, why? Why do we go in such depths? Johnny. I know that R.C. Sproul used to say that theology is life. Mm. And then in that sense that... Um, the more we know about theology, the more it impacts the fundamental nature of like how we live our lives. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Anybody else? I mean, all right. What do you want to add, Alex? Uh, I think it's uh, Dr. Steve Lawson says, uh, well, a lot of people say it, but uh, orthoprax orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. Mm. So you can't know what to do and how, how to do it right if you don't have the foundation of knowledge first. Yep. So we can't pursue sanctification without first knowing who God is mm -hmm. and his commands and all that. Yep, yep, excellent. And I want to come back to that point in a second. Um, what, oh, yes, Ms. Green. So I just, yes and yes and yes. <laughs> but, but also, also, um, I feel like the more theology I know, the more grounded I am, the more confident I am in what, who I am and what I believe. And then when people speak to me, I feel um, this, like I said, a confidence. Mm. I feel this settled uh, knowledge. There's, um, it's not just how to live. It's also, um, I feel comfort because I don't feel like I'm being taken captive by the philosophy, um, which is all around me. So I feel kind of protected also. And um, and that really is a relief to me, coming out of the world and being deceived by so much in the world previously to me. And it's like a reprogramming of my brain, which mm -hmm. started off. So um, not that we don't all start off in sin, but just in such wrong patterns. I just feel like I need to be renewed all the time. So mm -hmm. the more time I spend in theology, the more that's happening, and I don't fall into old patterns and all the things. Yeah. So, so it's yes and yes, but to me there's a lot of comfort in it. Yeah, amen. All right, good, good. Why then, if it's so important, um, why does it seem sometimes to be so difficult to do really in-depth study of doctrine or theology? Grace. I mean, for one thing, the same, the same reason that it's hard to do in-depth study of anything is that it's demanding. It's a lot of time commitment. Mm -hmm. You have to like, 
consciously set aside everything else to focus on it, and that's a lot. Yeah, it's hard. It takes time. It takes energy, right? <laughs> yes? Also, I think that um, you can't ever really fully um, understand a lot of it. Like, it just seems like it's layers. You, st- you understand it at this layer, and then, okay, fine. Then you start something again, and you can take it another layer, and another layer, and you can spend your whole lifetime just keeping on digging and learning and growing. So it's... Yeah. Um, yep. And it can be dry sometimes. You think of how it's presented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a criticism toward me. <laughs> I'm teasing. But, but you guys are bringing up this incredible point, right? As, as we dig, and Pastor Allen has said this, as you dig into any doctrine, any of these ten major doctrines, you get to a point where it does become a bit of a mystery. It, it's hard to explain. You just Those layers, you peel them back, you peel them back, you peel them back, and you get to a point where I just... I can't go any further. It's a matter of faith. And that's hard for people sometimes. But like you guys are saying, it is so fundamental to strengthening ourselves, equipping ourselves so that we can apply it in life. You know, that's what you were saying, Alex, right? In order to fully apply it correctly, you need to understand it first. So we need to be students of Scripture. I'll be very transparent with you. As a new believer, um, I shied away because it was hard. I couldn't understand it, right? I I knew the the top level. But as I've grown, as the Lord has sanctified me, I, I thirst now. It's exciting, right, to dig in and to understand it as much as you possibly can. So that's our journey today. But I want to encourage you, it has a journey with a purpose and end. This is a growing disciples class. It's not a come in and consume and gain knowledge. Yes, it's gain knowledge, but for what purpose? To apply it. So as you're going through today, I want you to think always about the application in your life. All right, so let's turn to the, the last part of this lesson. I think it's page 26. Should be the uh, lesson two homework. It says at the top of it. Is that right? And I just want, I want to read the application because I want you to be thinking about it as we go through the lesson and then you'll come back to it, okay? So it reads, reflect on Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So here's the question, how does that fact influence your sanctification, becoming increasingly more like Christ? So this fact that Christ can sympathize, he has been tempted in all things, I want you to think about that as we talk about Christ's incarnation, right? His deity and his humanness and what that means. But I want you to think about the application to your life. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to come back to that, so be thinking about it. Okay, you can go back to the front page 22 and we'll jump into our lesson here. Any questions first before I'll pause about the context here? That all makes sense? All right, we'll start with item one. In the incarnation, basically meaning God becoming man, Christ surrendered only the prerogatives of deity, but nothing of the divine essence. I think of prerogatives or privileges of deity, but nothing of the divine essence, either in degree or kind. He laid aside his right to the full prerogatives of coexistence with God and took on an existence appropriate to a servant while never divesting himself of his divine attributes. There's a lot there, isn't there? Um, This might be, and it's so appropriate this time of year, is it not, right? This might be one of those most profound mysteries in the Bible of how can God become man and still be God, right? Two natures in one person. It's, It's a bit of a mystery, And you guys know, and we'll go through some of these passages, but we see in the Word, His um, humanness, but His deity at the same time is consistently refuted, right? Consistently challenged, His authority, His deity. And we'll see it come out again and again and again. And most importantly, it is part of God's plan for redemption from eternity past. He always had this plan that He was going to have to send His Son. His son was going to have to become man and set aside some of his prerogatives, his privileges. Okay? 
All right, can someone read um, John 1? Obviously, John is a book all about Christ's deity, right? Go ahead, Diane. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so what does it describe here? Give me some of his attributes just in that simple verse. Timeless. Timeless. Okay, so it kind of it gets at the Trinity, right? There's, there's three persons, exactly. It, it obviously describes his divine nature. That's what you see in the very beginning, John 1, 1. But you got to keep going in the chapter, right? You go to 14. Grace, read John 1, 14 for me. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, of grace and truth. All right, isn't that beautiful, right? In one chapter, you see his deity, and then you see his, his human nature as well, taking on the form of humans. Romans 1.3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Again, many, many verses describing his deity and his humanness. Turn to Romans 8 in your Bibles for me, please. Romans 8, um, we're going to cover verse 3, but I want to actually start in verse 1. We have to always be asking ourselves, and, and you guys know the answer to this, and we'll, we'll describe it in greater detail, but why? Why did God have to take the form of a human? Right? That's the question we need to answer. And again, you guys know the answer to that, but let's use Scripture to walk through that. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, Romans 8 is probably one of my most favorite chapters in the whole Bible. There is so much truth that we should be um, covering ourselves with every day, right? The, the assurance of who we are in Christ. And verse 1 is one of those, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, let me back up. The, the verses before that are talking about the struggle between, yes, we are saved, and yet our members, we still struggle with sin, right? And now here we are in 8.1 saying, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Christ, God does not condemn you. That's a beautiful truth that should be underlined and highlighted in your Bible. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Romans, this passage starts, starts it's one example of explaining the why. Where did you see the why in there? Yep, that's part of it. But why he had to take on the human form. Verse 3, right? He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? He had to fulfill the requirement of the law. It had to happen. Now, we'll talk later why. Why did it have to happen the way that it did? All right? That's important. So keep that in mind. Like I said earlier, many false religions will try to refute the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that he came as deity to fulfill the law, the requirement of the law. Right? Again and again and again, we see in Scripture that trying to be refuted. Okay, good. All right, let's jump down to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And we're going to spend um, so a bit of time on that particular passage later on when we get to the supplemental notes, but uh, I think it's encouraging to read that now. Johnny, can you read that one for me, please? I'm sorry, which verse was that? Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Okay. <clears throat> Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thank you. So we, we need to pull this apart to understand what does it mean to empty himself? Because there are some differing views that have some huge implications as far as what does that mean. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to peel that back here in a second. All right, moving down to 1 Timothy 3.16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the word, taken up in glory. I, I just like the note there, you know, the mystery of godliness. We, we talked about it. This is very much a mystery. It's hard to understand. And yet we can have confidence that the Lord in his sovereignty has provided enough for us to know about this topic. He's given us everything we need to know. And if it goes beyond that, it wasn't important for us to know. All right, so we can have confidence in that. All right, let's move down to Hebrews 2.14. John, would you read that one for me, please? Since then the children share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same. Not that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Good. Um, I wanted to highlight here... Yeah, so um, if you recall during the baptisms, right, we, we ask a question, and it goes something like this. Do you believe that Jesus' life and death, burial, resurrection is the only work that can justify you before a holy God? There's two components of that. What, what are the two components of the work? So the life, right? He, he had to come and have a sinless life. The other part we're very familiar with, the death. We often go to the death part of that. It's just as important to remember his work is also his life, right? And we're going to talk more about that from birth all the way to his death. Critically, critically important. But what you see in this particular passage, I just wanted to point out, is the part about you know his death, that piece of his work that we're often familiar with and often go to when we think of his work. But the life is just as important. Okay? All right, next verse. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Who is the descendant of Abraham? Right. right. It's, not, it's not the bloodline. It's all of us that are believers in Christ. We are all the descendants of Abraham. What was happening here in Hebrews uh, 1 and 2 was he was addressing maybe some false um, understanding of angels and, and should they be worshipped or not, right? And he was trying, to, Hebrews is all about putting the focus back on Christ. Just as Roman is to the Gentiles, Hebrews to the Jews, right? He's trying, the author is trying to emphasize there is a better way in Christ, all right? So that's the focus here. And, and again, that distinction of, you're not from Abraham if you're from the line of Abraham. You are in Abraham if you are a believer in Christ. All right, let's go to the last passages, passage there. First John 4. Alex, can you read that for me? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. And the next passage, very similar, uh, at the top of the next page. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So this is this big battle that's going on, right? This big contrast. And, and you'll know many false religions, this is where they get tripped up. Right? They cannot acknowledge that Jesus came in flesh, but he is also God. That's the, the separator, if you will, between uh, what is right and what is wrong. And that's always being attacked. Right? It's always trying to be refuted. Um, you remember, right? Uh, I think later on we'll talk about it. But that's why they were trying to stone him. Because the Jews understood what he was saying. To say that, that I am deity as well as human flesh. Right? They understood the importance of what he was saying. 
right? So that's always what's being battled. And that's why when you are um, talking with someone from who is trying to proclaim a different religion, right? This is where you need to go. Who do you say Jesus is? That's where you got to start. Because then you'll really start to, to pick at the important aspect. And back to Kareen's comment and all of you guys, this is why we study doctrine. This is why we go deep so that you can have those conversations with the lost. Okay, does that make sense? All right. All right, moving on to um, item number two. So he gave up some of his prerogatives, right? Like we talked about of deity. Yet, in his incarnation, the eternally existing second person of the Trinity accepted all the essential characteristics of humanity and so became God-man. So give me some of those essential characteristics of humanity. And we'll talk about some of those, but not, not all of them in the passage below. What are some of his essential characteristics? Needing nourishment and food. Okay, nourishment, food, right? He, he, he needed nourishment and food to keep his body alive. Good. What else? Rest. Rest. He got tired, right? Um, can you give me an examples of, of that, of the food or the rest? Anybody? I mean, after 40 days of temptation, it says that he was weak from hunger. Okay, so he was hungry and he was tired. Yeah. Extremely. Good. What else? Sleeping in a boat. Sleeping in a boat. All right, now some commentators say he was just so tired from the day's events that that's why he was sleeping. He was, he was knocked out. For whatever reason, he was knocked out, right? So he was, he was human. Good. Anything else? Temptation. Say again? Temptation. Temptation. Right. We're going to talk about that. That's a key one. How about from the very beginning? Why, why he could have just, God could have, zoop, and there's Jesus. That didn't happen. What happened? He was born. He was born of a woman, right? Like all of us are. I think uh, uh, perseverance by the Spirit. Okay. Of the spirit, not by his own power. Yeah. And we're we're gonna talk about that when we talk about kenosis or what what did he give up or lay aside? That's a key distinction that we'll talk about, but that's an important one. Good. Um, did Jesus have any emotions? Anger. Right? Righteous anger. He wept, wept bitterly. In the garden he he was so grieved, you know, uh that he shed blood, if you will, drips of blood. All right, Jesus was very, very human as we understand human. So I think that's a powerful thing to remember. Sometimes we can think of Jesus as, as God, as we should, right? But we forget his humanness. And that's going to come into the application question that we talked about at the beginning. So that's why I wanted to highlight that. Good. All right, let's cover some of these verses. I'll go to the second one in Matthew 1. And we talked about this. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So we see there he had to have the birth. Right? Just like every human. And that's important, number one, because it was prophesied that he would come that way. So it had to fulfill prophecy, right? What was the importance of the virgin birth? What do we as humans, when, we're, when we are born, what do we all have? Nature. Sinful nature. Did, did Jesus, was he born with a sinful nature? Absolutely not, right? And that was the importance of virgin birth. And there's some, some doctrine or discussion around how that actually happened, and we're not going to go there today, but we, we can have confidence knowing that through the virgin birth, that sinful nature was not passed on to Jesus. All right? So good. So he had to have the birth. All right, next passage is a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading, especially this time of, time of year. And see if you can pick out, again, some of those human characteristics or essentials. Now, it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while... Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, 
in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let me pause there and, and how would you describe um, maybe some of the, the human essentials at this point? What jumps out that last uh, sentence I just read? Okay, he, he's cold. He's a baby, right? So he needs to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Diane? Well, I was going to say there's dependency. He mm -hmm. needed to be cared for. So just the like extreme humility that I mean like God could have chosen anyone. He chose people that he knew full well were going to be so not necessarily personally impoverished, but so on the outside in that moment, they're not even gonna have some place to put him. They're gonna use a feeding trough. Yeah, exactly right. So so this complete dependency as this young little child, right? Complete dependency, the humility of the situation. He wasn't born in a palace. Right, and brought up to the king's chair, what have you. He was born in a manger with cows and animals. All right, just extreme humility. All right, good. Let me continue. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, for behold I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So again, the dependency, the humility. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Again, the prophecy. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Think about Mary here for a second. What do you think was going through her head? We, we talk about a mystery today. And, and we have, you know, the complete canon in front of us. What do you think Mary was thinking? See? Yeah. I can't imagine the myriad of things that she was thinking, to your point, right? This this incredible blessing, and yet, how is she viewed by others? Um, you throw Joseph in the mix, right, who was a godly man and wanted to protect her, right? Um, I, I, can't, I can't even fathom what that was like, but you see here as she hears, um, this is the child that we were told about. As she hears this, she has to be so encouraged now. Right? That she just gave birth to the Savior. I don't know. That's just a beautiful thought, I thought. All right, let's turn the page and we'll keep going here. I'm going to jump down to the third one, John 20, 27. Miss Crean, can you read that, please? Again, we're looking at um, um, human essentials, if you will. Which one's Sorry, third one down, John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. All right, so what do we see here as far as human essentials? Flesh, human body, right? You can now touch the, the nail holes. What else does it say? This is, this is the resurrected Jesus. 
his resurrected body, he still has both natures, right? That's, that's as cool as it gets. And, and when it talks about him being the first fruits, this is what it's highlighting too, is it gives us a glimpse of what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. But he carries that with him. It, it wasn't like he came to earth and he took on human form or a humanness, a human nature, and then when he died and, and he was resurrected, he ascended, that that went away. He still has that. So that's a beautiful thought as well. All right, let's go down a couple more to 1 Timothy 2 through 5. Miss Tara, can you read that one, please? Oh, sorry, I thought you had the binder. <laughs> 1 Timothy 2, 5. I just want to test your Bible navigation. <laughs> Good job, by the way. <laughs> Good. All right, so we're going to talk about that. What's the key word in there? What, what is he? Mediator, right? Our perfect mediator, our sympathetic mediator. And how can that be? Because he was human. He went through every temptation that we have, and we're going to talk about that more. All right, let's see here. Yeah, I think that's what I wanted to cover on that one. All right, we, we are down to item three, the great paradox. Again, right, two distinct natures in one person. That's a bit of a paradox, a mystery. Jesus Christ represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. All right, it's not two persons. It's one person with two natures. If you understand that, you're, you're awesome, right? Because that's hard to understand, and yet it's truth. All right, let's look at those first two passages. We read them already, but it's worth reading again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was from eternity past. He was there at creation, and yet he was also God. Yet you see two different people, two distinct people. And then on top of that, the Word became flesh. So he took on an added nature and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's go down to the uh, bold First Corinthians. Um, Heather, can I have you read that one, please? Sure. And yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. All right, so you see God's perfect plan of redemption here, but I, I like to underline... There is but one God, the Father, from whom we are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Right? So that's the distinction, the for and the through. But again, you see two distinct persons here, part of the Trinity, um, with a perfect redemptive plan that happened before, before creation. Again, mind-boggling. That last verse there, 1 Timothy 2.5, we read that. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, our perfect, perfect mediator. All right, so let's uh, jump to the next page uh, where we have some supplemental notes on this idea of kenosis. Let me pull up my uh, <clears throat> MacArthur Systematic Theology. But let's read this passage in Philippians. We read it, but this is what we're going to spend some time um, discussing, and it's part of, um, part of the application as well. Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we really have to understand this idea of emptied himself. What does that mean? The Greek word for emptied himself gives name to the doctrine of kenosis. Christ voluntarily and temporarily laying aside the prerogatives of deity during his earthly ministry. He didn't exchange deity for humanity, 
He merely set aside the use and display of most of his divine attributes most of the time so that he could stay fully God but become fully man. That's a mouthful. I admit that. That is a mouthful. This idea, he merely set aside the use and display most of the time. So let's look at a couple of examples. The first one being the many miracles that he um, performed. Jesus did not perform miracles continually and indiscriminately. Could he have? He could have, but he didn't. During his earthly ministry, Jesus generally laid aside that prerogative in some of his divine attributes, omnipresence and transcendence, and was limited by normal human limitations of time and space. All right, so let's, let's pause there for a second. You remember that, that God is transcendent, right? He is independent. He is not limited by what he created in what we understand as time and space. He is outside of that, right? So in his divine nature, he, he's not limited by what we know as time and space. And yet God created that, right? What we know today. And so in his humanness, he was brought into that time and space, right? Um, this idea of, of laying aside some of his divine attributes. Did he give up his divine attributes? All right, so I want to highlight this contrast between this idea of kenosis, emptying himself or laying aside, and what is called kenosis theory, which is a, a theory that he gave up some of his divine attributes. Right? So that's a really critical distinction. Um, I found that the commentary uh, from MacArthur in his Systematic Theology book is really, really good. So I want to read that to you. And there's a really great, I'll call it visual, or thought that he brought forward that I thought was, was really enlightening. So I'll share that when it gets there. A little bit lengthy, but I think helpful. Because it's really important to understand this distinction about him just laying aside. And, and what did he do? What was he driven by? Why did he perform the miracles he did? Display God's glory and fulfill prophecy. Mm -hmm. Display God's glory, fulfill prophecy. But, but who was giving him direction? The Father. The Father. Everything he did was, was driven by what the Father told him to do. That's why he performed the miracles, because the Father said, go perform this miracle for the purpose of his glory and his prophecy and his, his sovereign plan, right? But so you see him actually performing miracles at certain times. So he certainly had a divine um, capability or those attributes, okay? All right, but let me read this. Of what did the pre-incarnate son empty himself at his incarnation? That's the question, right? That question has been answered in several unfortunate ways by what has come to be known as he calls it kenotic theology or kenosis theology. Named for the emptying spoken of in the kenosis, kenotic theologians have misunderstood this concept and have indicated that Christ emptied himself of some aspect of his deity during his incarnation. Does that make sense? They believe that, that some of his divine attributes were taken away when he became a human. In some forms, this erroneous teaching claims that Christ retained what they call his essential attributes of deity, his holiness, his grace, but surrendered what they call his relative attributes, his omniscience, his immutability. Okay, does that make sense? That's really important to make that distinction. However, it is by definition impossible for the eternal, immutable God to cease to exist as God. This fact concerning the Lord Jesus is confirmed throughout the New Testament. Even in his state of humiliation, the Lord Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. John 10.30, right? Back to John again. Far from a metaphorical expression of unity and purpose or plan, this was a metaphysical statement of the Son's shared essence with the Father. The Jews clearly understood this, for their reaction was to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Right, so John 10.30 is when he says, I and the Father are one, and then John 10.33 is when they want to stone him. You being a man, make yourself God. Right, they understood what he was saying. Even as man, he could legitimately claim that to see him was to see the Father. 
declare that he had authority over all flesh and receive worship from his disciples. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the incarnate Son's deity was revealed visibly as he peeled back the veil of his humanity, as it were, and allowed the expression of his own divine essence to shine forth. It is plain, then, that the Son did not empty himself of his deity or his divine attributes in his incarnation. The question remains, then, of what did he empty himself? Yet this question itself seems to misunderstand Paul's language in Philippians 2. Um, If you guys want to, as I explain this part, go back to Philippians 2 at the top of page 25 and follow along because he's going to describe some of the words that Paul is using here. While the verb kinu does not mean to empty, it is used exclusively in a metaphorical sense in the New Testament. It never means to pour out, as if Jesus were pouring his divine attributes out of himself. If that were Paul's intent, he would have used the word akio. Instead, kinu means to make void, or to nullify, or to make of no effect. Paul employs the term in this sense, in Romans 4.14, where he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Yet one does not ask of what what has faith been emptied. Rather, Paul intends to say that if righteousness could come by the law, faith would be nullified. It would come to naught. Similarly, it is the wrong question to ask of what did Christ empty himself. Christ himself is the object of this emptying. He nullified himself. As the King James Version translated, he made himself of no reputation. Again, he gave up the privileges of of his coexistence with God. The rest of the verse tells how Christ nullified himself in his incarnation. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ made himself of no reputation precisely by taking on a human nature. And this was the the next sentence is something that really just kind of jumped out at me. He emptied, listen, he emptied himself not by pouring out portions of his deity, but by adding to himself full and true humanity. Let me read that again. He emptied himself not by pouring out portions of his deity, but by adding to himself full and true humanity. I've never thought of it that way, right? God in his full deity taking on a human nature was a form of emptying himself, becoming a bondservant, right? He didn't lose anything. He added to himself this nature of humanness. I just think that's incredible. He was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. If he actually surrendered or gave up his divine attributes, then it might suggest that he ceased to be God. But that would result in something at odds with how the Bible identifies himself as being fully and truly God. Yet even in taking on human nature, the Son of God fully possessed his divine nature, attributes, and prerogatives. Um, I want to see, I just have a little bit more here. What then was his humiliation? For the sake of becoming a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Therefore, while the Son of God fully possessed his divine nature, attributes, and prerogatives, he did not fully express them. Right. So that's what he gave up, is his ability to fully express his divine nature, Right. his full attributes of God. They were veiled. At times, he did express them, such as when he read people's minds and worked divine miracles like we just talked about. But the master willingly submitted himself to the life of a slave. He surrendered the pre-incarnate glories from which he came. He left the worship of saints and angels to be despised and rejected by men, submitting himself to misunderstanding, denials, unbelief, false accusations, every sort of reviling and persecution. As God the Son, he had every right to exercise his divine prerogatives at will. Yet as the suffering servant of Yahweh, he he surrendered himself to the will of the Father in everything in everything. Thus, while he knew Nathaniel without having met him, and indeed knew all men, in the humility of his incarnation, he did not know the hour of his return. 
His internal divine glory was still present, though temporarily veiled by him being in the form of a servant. Although he was truly human, he also remained fully divine. Last paragraph. No conceptualization of the kenosis can be consistent with Scripture if that concept makes it possible for Christ to assert equality with God. Though equal with God, the Son of God submitted voluntarily to humanity and death as one who fully possessed the sovereign, free, holy, and loving will to be limited by his choice to obey the Father for the purpose of the program of redemption and the glory of the Godhead. I know that's a lot there, but again, I thought a great, great description of this dangerous kenosis theory, right, and what's truly happening. He's simply laying aside in certain situations. Miss Diane. So I thought I heard something when you were reading. I thought I heard you read that he gave up his ability. He didn't give up his ability. He gave up the prerogative or the privilege of using it. And I'd have to go back and see, but I'm sure that's exactly what MacArthur is, is saying. Johnny. I'm not sure if you mentioned this already, but if someone were to take on the kenosis theory of God giving up his deity, would it be reasonable to then question uh, the sinless nature of God in that moment if there was if God was not if Christ was not fully divine as well? Yeah, so I I, um, I think I think what you're trying to say that again. So, if someone were to take on the kenosis theory yep. and say, "Oh, well, in that case, Christ gave up his his you know, the deity aspect, right? Yep. And he only had a human nature. Yep. Would it then be reasonable to question the sinless nature of Christ because in that moment he was only human and he was right. fully divine? Right. Yeah. So we we need to go there. Let's let's have that discussion. Right. How 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 was God sinless? Right? Imagine that his deity would have, would have stepped in. Okay. In that case. Could he have sinned? Might have been. Part of me wants to say yes. <laughs> it's hard, right? Yeah. Right? Could he have sinned? Anybody else? No, I don't think so. Okay. He wouldn't be holy then. Right? What's that term, um, God is not able to sin? Do you guys remember? It's a big $5 word. His impeccability. His impeccability. He's unable to sin. But, but wait a minute. We said that he's fully human. And if he's human, he was fully tempted. We know that, right? He was fully tempted in everything. And yet he didn't sin. How, how does that work? Didn't Adam have the ability to not sin? Initially, right? Um, that's a whole other topic we can we can get into. But there was a period in his time where he was innocent, not necessarily righteous, right? And, and that's the distinction. So Adam, absolutely, they they had um, an ability to make a choice. He was innocent until they sinned. Grace. Because then wouldn't it be that he was fully human and therefore faced? Full temptation, but because he didn't have sin nature, he was unable to unconsciously sin. If he had sinned, it would have had to have been fully conscious and fully voluntary. But because he's fully divine, he can't go against God's own nature. Right? So he, he couldn't sin, but if he had, it would have had to have been a choice. So he can't do that. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Kareem, were you going to add something earlier? I My only question was I couldn't remember your definition of the kenosis theory because I thought you mentioned that there were certain aspects that stayed in place and certain aspects that didn't, and I couldn't remember if that was which one was which as far as giant question. You mean as far as which attributes he gave up? Right. Is what you're saying? Yeah. And, and that could be the debate, right, of, of to answer that, but... I'm wondering if maybe at this point it is left to the mystery of the incarnation and like the small inner workings of how that would work out. Like I don't think that's necessarily explicitly defined in scripture. Yeah. But Chester. But even in his deity, when you use the word prerogative, Jesus chose not to act in certain ways. If I wanted to get off the cross I could call legions of angels mm-hmm. and they would mm-hmm. do what I want them to do. But even in the miracles that Jesus does, he does them through the Holy Spirit. And so even what you see 
of deity in Jesus. It's not him saying, I have the ability to do this. Mm. It's him acting through the Holy Spirit to actually accomplish those miracles. So I don't really know, to Johnny's question, if we see Christ's deity in action from that perspective as much as we see Christ's deity in action from grace perspective in the ability to sin that will go against my my nature as being fully God. Yeah. But in action of what I can do, I'm choosing not to do it in my own power. I'm choosing to do it through the Holy Spirit's power. Right. So I can put that on this way. Yeah. And, and there's a, a thought that in his human nature, he relied on the Holy Spirit to resist temptation, just, just like we have to, right? There's, there's that aspect of it. So let's go to item B here. It, it's talking about this whole topic we're talking about of righteous living. Jesus lived a perfect life without any sin. He always did the right thing. <clears throat> Scholars are divided on the theoretical question of whether as a man, Jesus could have sinned but successfully avoided it, or, or whether being God, he could never have sinned. It, seemed it seems possible that both are true. He didn't sin because he successfully chose not to sin, providing an example for us. And Chester, I think you were kind of hinting at that. If it, were if it were not possible as a human for Jesus to sin, then it would seem impossible for him to be tempted as we are. Yet scripture is clear that he was. All right, and this is the passages in Hebrew. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that's to appease the wrath of God, that perfect um, substitute for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you can see, Pastor Dave always said this, good and godly Christians disagree, right? And, and this is something, Johnny, to your point that you can debate and you get to a point of it, it's a mystery and, and it's a bit of faith. But to say that in his human nature, he relied on, let me say this differently, that he was, let's say, covered by his deity and unable to sin doesn't seem to line up with the fact that he was tempted. That in his human nature, to be tempted means you have the possibility of sinning, mm -hmm. and yet he never sinned. Why is that? Did he rely on the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's the sense you get. That's the, the struggle here. Any other thoughts? This is a tough one. Any more thoughts? Alex? I think... I think um... When we consider the nature of man and totally subject to wickedness, and the only thing that restrains us is God's grace, mm -hmm. um, because of the sin imputation of our father Adam, because we were all born of him, come from a man, yep. Christ not having that, he does not need that restraining grace. And so it's... I think it's a, as a man, he feels temptation. But as God, the feeling does not overpower him. Hmm, sure. And so I think it's like, a, I think we, we have to remember that he is like us as a man, but he is not, he does not have that line of sin, that sin nature. And so where temptation I would, I would think, fundamentally has a different effect hmm. on him than it would us. Because we we are influenced. We cannot not be influenced by temptation to sin. Because our flesh is wicked. But his flesh is not. It's pure and it's holy. And so the temptation, though he can feel it, I'm kind of repeating myself now. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think we have to remember that, that, Yes, he came. Yes, he is a man. He suffered in our place. He fulfills that billet, so to say. But he is still God. He is still yeah. other. Yeah. Right. And I, even as a man, he is still holy. Yeah. And we are not. Yeah. So, so Alex, I, I like the point you're making. I'd have to think some more about that. But this, you know, this understanding of what does temptation mean to him, right? Without that sin nature, you know, he doesn't have members that. He's warring against, right? The, the flesh like we do. And yet, we see there 
We have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. So you bring up a great point. I, I have to think about that, but at the end of the day, we know we have a Christ who can sympathize with us. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what that temptation looked like for him, he can fully sympathize with us. Does that make sense? So you bring up a great point. I need to think about that, but regardless, whatever that was still allows him to absolutely sympathize with every temptation that we have, right? Is that fair? No, I agree. Yeah. And he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So even in our temptation, though it might have been somewhat slightly different, he is able to come to our aid. Every temptation. That should be, if you guys walk away with anything, right, there's this great mystery and hopefully you learn some things today, but that's what you want to walk away with, is we have a high priest who understands every temptation. That should give us what? Great hope and encouragement. Great hope and encouragement. Right? Underline that passage, memorize it. Because we're all going to be struggling until the day of glorification. All right, good. All right, um, we got some time. Let's go to the next page, 26. I do want to go over some of this uh, application, interpretation, um, the homework part of it. So let's go to interpretation number one. Explain the impossibility of a man becoming God and the wonder of God becoming a man. The impossibility, let's start with that. Explain the impossibility of a man becoming God. Why can man not become God? Yeah, right? It's our sin nature. There's no way, there's no way to become God. Now, there are some religions that believe you can, basically through works, right? You can achieve that Godhead or, or Godness, if you will. So, right, sinful nature. Um, the, yes. Oh, sorry. And also the fact that you know we're created beings too. Right. We exist in time and space. Right. God okay. is not. How can we? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Created beings. I mean, I will say it's about, it's about the same level of possibility as a tiny cluster of atoms exploding and making the entire universe. So. <laughs> yep. Very good. All right. Possibility of man becoming God and the wonder of. God becoming a man. Great condensation. Great condensation. I'm sorry, condescension. Yeah. <laughs> Two very different things. <laughs> Precipitation. Hi. <laughs> good. Condescension. Yep. <laughs> it's all good. Any other thoughts on that? Explain the wonder of God becoming a man. I think it's the Hold on, Sarah, real quick. Go ahead, I think it's the character of his love, because when I read that, I was like, why? Yeah. In my own finite first half of that conversation, if you were to ask me to do that, the first thing is, what's in it for me? <laughs> yeah. But, but because of who he is, he sees the value of becoming that for our benefit and our purpose. And then also can see his glory on display in all of it. Yeah. And especially just the fact that there were infinite ways for him to glorify himself without humbling himself that wouldn't have given us that personal relationship with him. So he he chose that the to be crucified and to live among us so that he would be a, a priest who can sympathize with us. Isn't that the great gospel message? Right, um, his perfect plan of redemption before all this started. He he knew there needed to be a plan, and and what an opportunity to talk about the love of God, right? That's why I go back to the gospel message, and and so often we have to bring people back to this this idea that God could have done so many different things. He could have should have destroyed us all, right? And yet, in His perfect love, yes, He's just. He can be a wrathful God. But you'll see no other God that has this kind of love to send his only son. Yes? Um, something that um, I, you all don't have answers to, but he didn't do this for the angels. Like they mm. fell, and he didn't provide a way of redemption for them. Excellent point. And I just, it is a wonder to me yeah. that he would do this. Made in the image of God and, and how he displays that kind of love, not for any else of his creation, even the angels. Yeah, that's a great point. Miss Sarah, you had a comment? Yeah. No, just uh, I heard that somebody asked me, just, asked me like, 
why, why do you think that God create, created us? And she me, I have no idea, but she said, I tell you the answer. God wants us to stay inside, and then God's going to come to our inside, and then we're gonna, we can be a God, that kind of, but I found out that she's she working for Philippine court, but the pastor, pastor, he is God's, God's friend, and when he talks to God, mm. God goes, but she makes sense. God, we can be a God too. God wanna come to our, our mm-hmm. That's why God created us. To to your first and question. The whole time makes sense, right? Yeah. To your first question, why did why God did God create us? That kind of question. Yeah. Why, why did God create us? <laughs> first glory. It, it's that simple. Did He need to? Did He need us? Absolutely not. It just brings him great joy. Miss Millie. But we are here to serve him. Mm-hmm. And not many people realize that mm-hmm. uh, God doesn't owe us anything. And we were created in his image to serve him. Mm-hmm. But I think about what uh, Corinne said, or someone over here said that, if God didn't forgive the angels who dropped from heaven, mm-hmm. When we sin, he still has grace and mercy for mm-hmm. us. So we must be somewhere above those angels that drop down from heaven. Mm. <coughs> but his grace is sufficient. And and also, I would like to add that um, in many songs, in many verses, God tells us that he is not a man that he would lie and we good at lying, mm-hmm. we good at cheating, we good at saying, but his grace is sufficient. Amen. Amen. Good. Thanks, Melly. Um, we got a couple minutes left. I want to make sure we get to the application. This is what we started with, right? Let me read it again. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. How does that fact influence your sanctification, becoming increasingly more like Christ? Anyone want to share? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, for me, you know, it's it's uh, it's knowing that whatever I go through isn't new. Okay. It's an old. Yep. I mean, really, since the dawn of time. But uh, knowing that whatever I'm tempted with, Christ also suffered that same temptation and overcame it. Um, and so remembering, I think I think it helps me to, because uh, in moments of temptation, our heads get really loud. And it helps me to step out of that noise and think more clearly and, mm. and subjectively about what I'm going through. And, and then from that position, uh, recite truths, and, and passages I know to myself, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I think, uh, similar to what Christ did to overcome his temptation, which is relying on the Spirit. Because when you rely on the Word, you're doing the same thing. You're beseeching the Lord to deliver you, right? Because uh, I think for Corinthians, where He provides the way of escape. Yep. Mm-hmm. He is <clears throat> the way of escape. Yep. And uh, so, just remembering that—that that it's. It's all subject to his power. Yeah. You know, Alex, you bring up a couple of points that we talked about earlier. <clears throat> I think sometimes it can be easy to say, well, well, Jesus was God. Of course he didn't sin. But we've talked about this humanness and a reliance on the Holy Spirit. And we, we have a, 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 a Lord that can sympathize with every temptation. That, again, should be a hope and encouragement. And what do you do? You equip yourself. That's why you memorize Scripture. That's why you're in the Word. That's why you underline things. So in those times of temptation, you can pull, right? You can pull on those Scriptures, that truth. So good. Johnny. Um, In a similar vein, um, oftentimes when you hear that we are called to be holy, it can be very, like, such a high calling. It's like, oh, my goodness, God, he's so far above there. How can I ever measure up, right? And, you know, we often kind of get into the mindset, like, oh, my goodness, I have to work for this and mm-hmm. all that. But, um, you know, the fact that Jesus, you know, sympathizes with our weakness, he knows that, hey, we're weak. You know, there is the power of, of 
of bad habits, right? And how hard it is to kind of overcome that. And so yeah. it kind of brings God closer to us in the sense that, hey, he understands you. Yeah. He knows that you're weak, and yet he still forgives you. Mm-hmm. He's merciful, Yeah. right? And just kind of like the first John passage, right? You know, yeah. Anyone uh, finds that they are in sin, you know, we have an advocate with the Father. Yeah. So it is very comforting, and it kind of reassures us that, yes, God understands, and we can press forward, even though we know that we sin. Yep. We call on his forgiveness. Yep. You know, I was, I was thinking as you were describing that, Johnny, sanctification. <clears throat> Could it not have been that when, when we as human beings become saved, our heart regenerated, we're justified, mm-hmm. That at that point we're not we could be glorified at the same time, mm-hmm. right? That he could have he could have planned it that way, but he didn't. There's this period of sanctification, and now we have this truth, right? right that that we have a high priest that can sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. He he built in sanctification. That's his plan, and yet he gave us a way to work through that sanctification. I think that's just a beautiful thought. Mm-hmm. What else? Any other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> I love that, and I would only suggest use Roman 8 as a, as a foundation as you're going through that process, right? Because as you go through that process, it can be easy to, to do what? To condemn yourself when you fail. Well, I got step 1, but I just failed step 2. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation. 8, 16, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The last part of uh, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love. That's why I love Romans 8. So, so you need to use scripture because it's a battle. Sanctification is a battle, right? Good. All right, any other closing comments from anybody? All right, let's pray.